Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. Let's get into this chart that I think is going to completely blow your mind. And we look at the GDP number as an example. We see it explode to the upside, five, or excuse me, 4.9%. And it's really a head scratcher. You're, you're saying to yourself, well, how is this even possible right now based on my personal experience and the experience that I'm hearing from all my friends and family members? Well, this article, I think, sheds some light on that, this chart. And I think it really changes my view on a lot of things, such as how long it's going to take to get to a recession, even potentially consumer price inflation in the United States. So let's go through this. This is on CNBC. And right here, title of the article, Here's Americans' Net Worth at Every Age. And this just came out. For people under 35 it's up 142%. So for all you Gen Xers, or Gen Z, I guess it would be, and millennials, I don't want to hear you bitching and moaning anymore. <laughs> this is crazy. Up 142%, and this is since 2019. Now, I knew that we had additional savings. I understand that... People are receiving higher nominal wages, although the real wages have gone down. I understand that they haven't had to pay their student loans. And a lot of people haven't even had to pay their mortgages, uh, or they at least got a break for quite some time. So the expense side of their PL has gone down dramatically. I get it. But 142%? Like Josh was just telling me how he was down in Boston this over the past weekend, and it completely blew his mind how packed the bars and cafes and restaurants were of all these young people out there enjoying themselves, buying things, spending money. And this would explain why. I guess I have a little bit of a disadvantage because I don't really spend much time in the United States by choice. <laughs> so I don't really have my finger on the pulse of all this stuff. I just look at the macroeconomic data. I hear what people are telling me via the YouTube channel in the comments. And I assume that people are having a hard time. But obviously, for people under 35, it's, life is good, for heaven's sakes. So let's go down and, and read this article and see if we can connect some dots. So Americans under 35 increased their median net worth by a whopping 142%. Now, it's not that they're millionaires or anything. It went from 16000 to 39000 but still, from a psychological standpoint, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. That makes you feel like you're making progress. That makes you feel like you're getting richer. That makes you feel like if you try to get another job, you're going to be able to get one that pays you a lot more. That makes you feel like your side hustle is panning out. That makes you feel like your Airbnb side hustle that you got involved with because you saw it on TikTok is going to make you a millionaire in the next five years. You know, th th that's a big, that means people spend, 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 spend. Now, if they're spending that much, I don't know how their net worth <laughs> is going up to that degree. But uh, I think a lot of this has to do with this generation just choosing to live at home. And so I'm not going to give my opinion as to whether that's good or bad. But you guys know darn well, you guys that are Gen X and above, that when we were 17, 18 years old, there was no choice. Like there was no, well, should I stay living at home? Should I not? No, your your, your parents were literally 
crossing off the days on the calendar until you hit 18 to give your ass the boot where <laughs> you were gondo. You're on your own, my friend. All of this me providing you food and shelter nonsense that you've had over the past 18 years old. Yeah, get over that real quick because that game has come to an end. <laughs> and you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You guys that are in my age group. For the young people, this sounds like a completely foreign concept. And I, I like the young people that say, oh, well, yeah, you can't compare that because you guys had so much more opportunities. So for me living in my parents' garage when I'm 35, that's not as bad. That's not, oh, look, dude, when I got booted out of the house, when everyone else got booted out of the, booted out of the house, I, I, the economy wasn't this good. I can tell you what, my net worth wasn't, wasn't doubling every three years, for heaven's sakes. And I couldn't just go out and find a job where my nominal wages were increasing by 20% year over year. My point there is not to make fun of young people. Every generation has their pros and cons, has their difficulties, their struggles, etc. But what I do want to point out is it is just a matter of fact that a lot more young people live at home. That's much more acceptable today than it was when I was young. And therefore, although the rate of inflation goes up, it really doesn't impact them. Because if inflation is going up, you know, food, shelter, energy, okay, you don't really spend any money on energy. You don't really spend any money on shelter. Okay, you might spend a little bit of money on food. But other than that, what are your expenses that are going up? Not that much. But yet your nominal wages are increasing dramatically. So for someone with, I keep looking at the wrong camera here. <laughs> I'm used to that camera, not this one. But for someone with normal expenses that a 40 or 45-year-old would have, you're behind. You're behind the eight ball here because your nominal wages have not gone up with the rate of inflation. But you get it. If you're under that age, you don't have those expenses. This is a windfall. Let's get back to the report here. The report defines net worth as the difference between assets and liabilities. I would be very curious how they are measuring the liability that is student loan debt because that, that, that could really change the picture as well, right? Because if they're just saying, okay, you don't have to pay, you're not making your payments, therefore, we're not going to include that as a liability. Well, <laughs> that could be the difference in the, in the net worth right there. So liabilities, on the other hand, are debts, money you owe, such as mortgage, car payment, or student loan. Yeah, so that would imply that they are including it, even though they're not making payments. To that point, many young people don't have assets that would push up their net worth a little less than 40% of Americans under 35 own a home. Yeah, but that 40% that, that do own a home or do own assets because assets have gone up so much, that's going to dramatically impact the average. On the other hand, Americans ages 65, 74 are the highest net worth. Okay, we know that. And here's that chart I was referring to. But what I want to point out, although under 35 have seen the biggest percentage increase, it's not as though they've seen the biggest increase. I mean, look at 55 to 64. Their net worth has increased by $100,000. $100,000. This is just, I mean, this is really shocking. 35 44 up $35,000. But look at 45 to 54 up over $50,000. I mean, this explains a lot, guys. This explains a lot. So I want to be clear how this changes my view or, or really 
makes me question my view is I was under the assumption that purchasing power would really go back to 2019 in this quarter of this year. And that definitely increases the probability of the yield curve being right, us getting that bull steepener, which is the Fed dropping rates, because people just run out of purchasing power and they wake up one morning, their savings is right back to where it was in 2019, but their nominal income has not kept up with the rate of inflation. Therefore, aggregate demand goes down. But in, in this world where assets are just going up and up and up and up and up, I mean, this maybe that top 40% of the young generation that owns assets is going to carry aggregate demand and on net balance increase aggregate demand, although that's going to exacerbate the divide between haves and have-nots, even within specific age groups. And the, the problem here, as you guys can probably tell, is our economy was completely dependent upon asset prices back in 2019. But now, I mean, it is way worse. Let's just imagine a world, just, just for a moment here, where the stock market goes down by 50% and housing goes down by 50% in nominal terms. So something like a GFC, that, that is, I mean, collapse territory right there. Because you can go back and say, well, George, that's what happened during the GFC. Yeah, right. But even back then, I would argue, our, although our economy was very dependent on asset prices, it wasn't near as dependent as it is now. I mean, let me give you a quick example. I'm going to St. Bart's. Again, I'm actually on Wednesday. I've got to fly to New Orleans for the New Orleans New Orleans Investment Conference. So if you guys are going there, uh, look forward to seeing you. And then I've got to go to St. Bart's and I've got to go to the Bahamas for a collective event. That's the mastermind group that I have with uh, Kenny McElroy and Jason Hartman. But I'm going to uh, St. Bart's to visit some good friends, obviously Hugh Hendry and whatnot. But this is a great example of an economy that is totally dependent on two things, tourism and asset prices, asset prices being real estate. So the, the locals there have 80% of their, their purchasing power, for heaven's sakes. A lot of these locals comes from just the real estate that they've been gifted. <laughs> their parents gave them and their grandparents gave the parents and so on and so forth. And because the land is in touch, such tight supply, therefore you just cannot increase the supply really more than one or two houses a year, it seems like. So therefore, if you get demand going up, then although that prevents younger people from buying, the younger people that do own or the people that do own, that makes their net worth go up and up and up and up. Obviously, they're purchasing parks. They can borrow against that. And you combine that with tourism, therefore they can use part of that asset as massive amounts of cash flow coming in from something like Airbnb. You can see how it, it the economy looks healthy. It looks like it's growing. It looks like it's doing well when you go there and you walk down the boardwalk and you go to the Gucci, the Louis Vuitton, and et cetera. But the problem there is that you do not have a diversified economy. And if you have an economy that's that's pretty much all your eggs are in that one basket, 
look, if something happens there, your economy is devastated. And that's an extreme example. But I would argue, especially after looking at this chart, that the United States is getting closer and closer to a, a St. Bart's from a standpoint of the economy is, is pretty much predicated on one thing and, and one thing only. You're looking at it as soon I guess a couple things. You could say the stock market and housing. <laughs> so and you say, George, well, the Fed realizes this. So the Fed is going to come in and prop everything up. Oh, really? They're going to prop everything up. They're going to prop everything up just like they did in 2000 when they came out to save the day and the stock market just absolutely tanked. No, that was fiscal. That was not monetary. And the only control the Fed has is, is basically monetary. Uh, go back and look at the GFC. You know, they came out, tried to save the day there. They did, but housing still went down from 2006 all the way to 2012. So after the Fed came out with QE and all this stuff, and they dropped rates down to 0% and whatnot, housing prices still went down, 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 all the way to roughly July or August of 2012. So th th this is not a, a certainty that we don't have to worry about this because the Fed realizes it, so they're just gonna keep bumping up asset prices higher and higher and higher. At a certain point, they don't have control over that. Hey guys, I wanna remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. This would lead me to a few conclusions here. Number one, uh, I could see inflation staying higher for longer. That That's for sure, because this is demand side stuff where I'm, I'm looking at the increase in inflation as, as about 80% supply side, 20% demand side. Now, my goodness gracious, after looking at this, I would say it's probably 50-50. And therefore, I think in, inflation can remain much higher and could possibly go up to maybe 4, you know, 4.5, right around there, where before, I didn't think we could get over maybe... You know, I thought we'd be in this range between 2.5, maybe 3.5, maybe 4, until we had the next catalyst. That would be the next wave of government spending that would translate from savings going to checking. Or on the opposite side of that, we had a deflationary bust that's being predicted by the yield curve, which would prompt the Fed to drop rates. That's usually what we have when we have an inversion. You have that bull steepener, but that would be uh, a result of something that would lead to disinflation or deflation. I thought there needed to be some sort of catalyst. Now, I'm, I don't know that I've changed that view, but I definitely need to 
uh, I definitely need to reevaluate. I need to revisit my base case on that because if this keeps going to where the the, the net worth just goes up and up and up and up, uh, my goodness, I, I could see how you could get another slight wave of inflation. I don't think it goes back to 9% or anything like that, but it could go higher than what I thought for my base case. Uh, second takeaway is that this recession, uh, this you could have to hit the pause button for a lot longer here because I thought people were running out of purchasing power this quarter. Obviously not, if this chart is correct. So I need to reevaluate the timeline there and understanding that usually when you get an inversion of the curve, it takes about 15 months, right off the top of my head, to 24 months before you usually get a recession. So I thought, you know, we'd be around 18, 19 months, something like that. That would make sense to me. But based on this, maybe it's on the longer end of that extreme. Maybe it's 24 months. Who knows? Maybe it's 30 months. So that takes us deep into 2024, if not maybe the end of 2024. I'm not saying I've changed my view, but I need to revisit it on those two fronts for sure. My third takeaway is uh, far less optimistic. The third takeaway would be really an eye-opener as to how much the U.S. economy is dependent on asset prices. I, I, I knew that they were very dependent, but unfortunately, what this chart shows us is it's far more dependent than even I assumed. And therefore, you know, it's a fun ride going up, but it's it's like that roller coaster that as soon as you start going down as far as asset prices, it's going to make the bottom a lot, lot worse than it otherwise would have been. And look, the Fed can come in and do whatever they want. They can do as much with fiscal as they want. But at a certain point, the market is going to overwhelm whatever they do. And if the market wants asset prices down, that's exactly what the market's going to get. And in the real estate front, we got to remember that demand is at an all-time low. In fact, let's go over to this chart from Visual Capitalist. And uh, you'll find this fascinating, guys. 2023 real estate bubble risk. So what they were trying to do with this pictograph, which is fantastic, is show you which cities globally have the highest risk for being in a bubble, let's say. But I think what they inadvertently do is show you that the global real estate bubble has popped and is deflating as we speak. So check this out. The bubble risk would be anything in red that would be more than an index score of 1.5. Overvalued would be kind of this gold yellow thing and fair valued would be green. So what they're insinuating is that, well, if you're in the green, then you got nothing to worry about. But that's like saying that okay, well, things are, the housing market is more fair valued in 2010 than it was in 2006. Yeah, it was, but it kept going down for the next three years. <laughs> it kept going down and down and down and down. That just told us, that, yeah, it's more fair valued. But that just told you that the bubble popped. So let's look at this, uh, the bottom of these data. Look at Stockholm. So this is something that I pound the table on over and over over and over in my videos. You guys know this, that I say this till I'm blue in the face. 
is that when you look at asset prices, real estate prices, you can't just look at nominal prices. You got to look at prices adjusted for inflation, for heaven's sakes. And when I sit there and say that my base case is real estate goes lower in the next, call it three, four years, it's not just nominal. Nominal could be flat. Nominal could be up. It's adjusted for the rate of inflation. That's the only thing that matters, at least to me as an investor, if I'm trying to figure out if an asset, if an asset class like U.S. real estate is cheap, or expensive. So, but looking at this globally, and as we know from the GFC, a lot of times these asset bubbles can happen globally. It's not just isolated to the United States. But when you adjust for the rates of inflation, which people really struggle with, I get that in the comments all the time. Well, George, what are you talking about? Real estate market going down? No, 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 no. In my area, prices are flat. I mean, they've probably even gone up over the last six months, right, but adjust for inflation, <laughs> adjust for the, the, the consumer price inflation being at, let's say, you know, 3.74% year over year, but go back and make sure you adjust for that 9% year over year, make sure you adjust for that. And when you do, you see that, oh, oh, wait, well, I guess maybe it hasn't gone up that much. And people would then argue, okay, but the debt is nominal as well. Okay, that's fine but we're looking at the overall purchasing power of the asset itself and the equity within that asset. That's really what matters at the end of the day. So look at Stockholm. When you adjust for inflation, housing prices in Stockholm are down 22%. 22. And this is not since 2019. This is just over the last year. In one year, down 22%. If that's not a real estate crash, I don't know what is. In fact, I right off the top of my head, I think that would probably exceed the greatest decline, the biggest decline that we had in our real estate crash from 2006 to 2012. I don't know that we had a year that was over 20% in one year. I mean, that is a staggering number. And look at this. Munich, 13 Frankfurt down 16, Hong Kong 7, Toronto, here's our neighbors from the north, down 14.7, LA down 3.7, Vancouver down 10.6. So when I have all these Canadians say, yep, well, the government's just going to kick the can down the road and everyone's been talking about our real estate market crashing forever and it never has. Really? Just adjust for inflation, my man. And when you adjust for inflation, you see that this might be the the most incognito real estate crash that we've ever seen, where most people don't even think it's crashing, therefore no one's talking about it. But when you sit there and do the math, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought my equity was fine when really I can't buy half as much stuff. Uh, I'm taking it to extreme, but you guys know what I'm saying here. Look at this, Boston. 3%. San Francisco down almost 11%. So you get my point here. And let's go back to the article where we look at the, uh, the, the net worth increasing and therefore how that translates into the overall broad economy, inflation, recession, etc. And then we realize, oh my gosh, the U.S. economy is far more dependent on asset prices now than it even was in 2019. And that's saying a lot. And 
we can look around the world at these other real estate bubbles and see that they are in the process of crashing. There, there is no disputing that for heaven's sakes. There's a couple outliers like Dubai and whatnot, where it's actually going up adjusted for inflation. But most of these in the developed world, these real estate markets are going down. So you can see that happening in a lot of cities in the United States as well. Now, it might not have hit your city yet in the U.S., but that doesn't mean it's not coming. And if you go back and look at the GFC, I would encourage you to do that because the U.S. real estate market, when it went down from 2006 to 2012, it didn't happen just across the board. Like it wasn't just one day, all markets are going down. And then the next day, you know, all markets flatten out, then all markets start to recover. That's not how it works. At the beginning of that crash that we had, let's say started in 2006, going into 2007, 2008, it was the exact same thing. Some markets were going down, but some markets were flat. Some markets were going up. That's why that Ben Bernanke, that's one of the reasons why he came out and said, or he argued that subprime was contained and that all these mortgage-backed securities, they weren't a big risk because they had diversification throughout the United States. And yes, you had some markets going down, therefore a higher risk at default, but that's not going to impact. That's not going to impact the entire asset, which is all these more, I call them mortgage-backed sausages because they take all these mortgages and combine them together. So if two or 3% of these things fail, or going to default because those markets are going down. No big deal because we got all these other markets that are going up or at least flatlining. That was the argument back then. But what we had is more and more and more markets go into nominal decline. And I guess you could argue now that if we don't have that nominal decline, it doesn't really matter from that standpoint as if real if uh, real prices are going down. But from a standpoint of the risk to the global banking system, maybe not, maybe not. But as far as the risk to the U.S. economy, absolutely, absolutely, you have to consider this dynamic that if these net worth, if the net worth, even if it continues to rise, but it goes down in real terms, adjusted for inflation, that impacts the purchasing power, aggregate demand, and that's when the stuff hits the fan. All right, guys. So that was some eye-opening data. Some actually really exciting stuff. I love it when I see stuff like that, and it makes me challenge my view, and it gives me some uh, different angles on what's actually happening, and therefore what we might see in the future. So I'm definitely going to have to process this. I would suggest that you guys kind of think this through and come to your conclusions. And on that note, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, and we'll see you in the next video.